Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the February 2021 edition of Socialism for All. It's an audiobook of Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement by Anuradha Gandhi. This is part three of three of the recording. We have already recorded up through section four, and we are about to begin section five, Socialist Feminism. Socialist or Marxist women who were active in the New Left anti-Vietnam War student movement in the 1960s, joined the women's liberation movement as it spontaneously emerged. Influenced by the feminist arguments raised within the movement, they raised questions about their own role within the broad democratic movement, and the analysis on the women's question being put forward by the new left, essentially a Trotskyite revisionist leftist trend critical of the Soviet Union and China, of which they were a part. Though they were critical of the socialists and communists for ignoring the women's question, unlike the radical feminist trend, they did not break with the socialist movement, but concentrated their efforts on combining Marxism with radical feminist ideas. There is a wide spectrum amongst them as well. At one end of the spectrum are a section called Marxist feminists, who differentiate themselves from socialist feminists because they adhere more closely to Marx, Engels, and Lenin's writings, and have concentrated their analysis on women's exploitation within the capitalist political economy. At the other end of the spectrum are those who have focused on how gender identity is created through child-rearing practices. They have focused on the psychological processes and are influenced by Freud. They're also called psychoanalytic feminists. The term feminist is used by all of them. Some feminists who are involved in serious study and political activity from the Marxist perspective also call themselves Marxist feminists to denote both their difference from socialist feminists and their seriousness about the woman's question. Marxist feminists like Maria Rosa Dalla Costa and others from a feminist group in Italy did a theoretical analysis of housework under capitalism. Dalla Costa argued in detail that through domestic work, women are reproducing the worker, a commodity. Hence, according to them, it is wrong to consider that only use values are created through domestic work. Domestic work also produces exchange values, the labor power. When the demand for wages for housework arose, Dalla Costa supported it as a tactical move to make society realize the value of housework. Though most did not agree with their conclusion that housework creates surplus value and supported the demand for wages for housework, yet their analysis created a great deal of discussion in feminist and Marxist circles around the world and led to a heightened awareness of how housework serves capital. Most socialist feminists were critical of the demand, but it was debated at length. Initially, the question of housework, early 1970s, was an important part of their discussion, but by the 1980s, it became clear that a large proportion of women were working outside the house, for, or for some part of their lives they worked outside the house. By the early 1980s, 45% of the total workforce in the U.S. was female. Then their focus of study became the situation of women in the labor force in their countries. Socialist feminists have analyzed how women in the U.S. have been discriminated against in jobs and wages. The gender segregation in jobs, too, concentration of women in certain types of jobs which are low wage, has been documented in detail by them. These studies have been useful to expose the patriarchal nature of capitalism. But for the purpose of this article, only the theoretical position regarding women's oppression and capitalism that they take will be considered by us. We will present the position put forward by Heidi Hartman in a much-circulated and debated article, The Unhappy Marriage of Marxism and Feminism, 
towards a more progressive union to understand the basic socialist feminist position. According to Heidi Hartman, Marxism and feminism are two sets of systems of analysis which have been married, but the marriage is unhappy because only Marxism, with its analytic power to analyze capital, is dominating. But according to her, while Marxism provides an analysis of historical development and of capital, it has not analyzed the relations of men and women. She says that the relations between men and women are also determined by a system which is patriarchal, which feminists have analyzed. Both historical materialist analysis of Marxism and patriarchy, as a historical and social structure, are necessary to understand the development of Western capitalist society and the position of women within it, to understand how relations between men have been created and how patriarchy has shaped the course of capitalism. She's critical of Marxism on the women's question. She says that Marxism has dealt with the women's question only in relation to the economic system. She says women are viewed as workers, and Engels believed that the sexual division of labor would be destroyed if women came into production, and all aspects of women's life are studied only in relation to how it perpetuates the capitalist system. Even the study on housework dealt with the relation of women to capital, but not to men. Though Marxists are aware of the sufferings of women, they have focused on private property and capital as the source of women's oppression. But according to her, early Marxists failed to take into account the difference in men's and women's experiences of capitalism, and considered patriarchy left over from an earlier period. She says that capital and private property do not oppress women as women, hence their abolition will not end women's oppression. Engels and other Marxists do not analyze the labor of women in the family properly. Who benefits from her labor in the house, she asks, not only the capitalist, but men as well. A materialist approach ought not to have ignored this crucial point. It follows that men have a material interest in perpetuating women's subordination. Further, her analysis held that though Marxism helps us to understand the capitalist production structure, its occupational structure and its dominant ideology, its concepts like reserve army, wage laborer, class, are gender-blind because it makes no analysis about who will fill these empty places, that is, who will be the wage laborer, who will be the reserve army, etc., etc. For capitalism, anyone, irrespective of gender, race, and nationality, can fill them. This, they say, is where the women's question suffers. Some feminists have analyzed women's work using Marxist methodology, but adapting it. Juliet Mitchell, for example, analyzed women's work in the market, her work of reproduction, sexuality, and child-rearing. According to her, the work in the marketplace is production, the rest is ideological. For Mitchell, patriarchy operates in the realm of reproduction, sexuality, and child-rearing. She did a psychoanalytical study of how gender-based personalities are formed for men and women. According to Mitchell, quote, we are dealing with two autonomous areas, the economic mode of capitalism and the ideological mode of patriarchy, unquote. Hartman disagrees with Mitchell because she views patriarchy only as ideological and does not give it a material base. According to her, the material base of patriarchy is men's control over women's labor power. They control it by denying access to women over society's productive resources, denying her a job with a living wage, and restricting her sexuality. This control, according to her, operates not only within the family but also outside at the workplace. At home, she serves the husband, and at work, she serves the boss. Here it is important to note 
that Hartman makes no distinction between men of the ruling classes and other men. Hartman concluded that there is no pure patriarchy and no pure capitalism. Production and reproduction are combined in a whole society in the way it is organized, and hence we have what she calls patriarchal capitalism. According to her, there is a strong partnership between patriarchy and capitalism. Marxism, she feels, underestimated the strength and flexibility of patriarchy and overestimated the strength of capital. Patriarchy has adapted and capital is flexible when it encounters earlier modes of production and it has adapted them to suit its needs for accumulation of capital. Women's role in the labor market, or work at home, is determined by the sexual division of labor and capitalism has utilized them to treat women as secondary workers and to divide the working class. Some other socialist feminists do not agree with Hartman's position that there are two autonomous systems operating, one, capitalism in the realm of production, and two, patriarchy in the realm of reproduction and ideology, and they call this the dual systems theory. Iris Young, for example, believes that Hartman's dual system makes patriarchy a kind of a universal phenomenon existing before capitalism in every known society, but this is a historical and prone to cultural and racial bias. Iris Young and some other socialist feminists argue that there is only one system, that is, capitalist patriarchy. According to Young, the concept that can help to analyze this clearly is not class, because it is gender-blind, but division of labor. She argues that the gender-based division of labor is central, fundamental to the structure of the relations of production. Among the recently more influential socialist feminists, are Maria Mies, she also has developed into an eco-feminist, who also focuses on division of labor, quote, the hierarchical division of labor between men and women and its dynamics for man are an integral part of dominant production relations, i.e. class relations of a particular epoch and society and of the broader national and international divisions of labor, unquote. According to her, a materialist explanation requires us to analyze the nature of women's and men's interaction with nature, and through it, build up their human or social nature. In this context, she is critical of Engels for not considering this aspect. Femaleness and maleness are defined in each historical epoch differently. Thus, in earlier, what she calls matristic societies, women were significant, for they were productive, they were active producers of life. Under capitalist conditions, this has changed, and they are housewives, empty of all creative and productive qualities. Women as producers of children and milk, as gatherers and agriculturalists, had a relation with nature which was different from that of men. Men related to nature through tools. Males' supremacy came not from superior economic contribution, but from the fact that they invented destructive tools through which they controlled women, nature, and other men. Further, she adds that it was the pastoral economy in which patriarchal relations were established. Men learned the role of the male in impregnation. Their monopoly over arms and this knowledge of the male role in reproduction led to changes in the division of labor. Women were no longer important as gatherers of food or as producers, but their role was breeding children. Thus, she concludes that, quote, we can attribute the asymmetric division of labor between men and women to this predatory mode of production, or rather appropriation, which is based on male monopoly over means of coercion, i.e. arms, and direct violence by means of which permanent relations of exploitation and dominance between the sexes was created and maintained." Unquote. To uphold this, 
The family, state, and religion have played an important part. Though Mies says that we should reject biological determinism, she herself veers towards it. Several of their proposals for social change, like those of radical feminists, are directed toward transformation of man-woman relations and the responsibility of rearing children. The central concern of socialist feminists, according to her, is reproductive freedom. This means that women should have control over whether to have children and when to have children. Reproductive freedom includes the right to safe birth control measures, the right to safe abortion, daycare centers, a decent wage that can look after children, medical care, and housing. It also includes freedom of sexual choice, that is, the right to have children outside the sociocultural norm that children can only be brought up in a family of a woman and a man. Women outside such arrangements should also be allowed to have and bring up children, and child-rearing in the long run must be transformed from a women's task to that of men and women. Women should not suffer due to childlessness or due to compulsory motherhood, but they recognize that to guarantee all the above, the wage structure of society must change, women's roles must change, compulsory heterosexuality must end, the care of children must become a collective enterprise, and all this is not possible within the capitalist system. The capitalist mode of production must be transformed, but not alone, both, also mode of procreation, must be transformed together. Among later writers, an important contribution has come from Gerda Lerner. In her book, The Creation of Patriarchy, she goes into a detailed explanation of the origins of patriarchy. She argues that it is a historical process that is not one moment in history, due not to one cause, but to a process that proceeded over 2,500 years, from about 3100 BC to 600 BC. She states that Engels in his pioneering work made major contributions to our understanding of women's positions in society and history. He defined the major theoretical questions for the next hundred years. He made propositions regarding the historicity of women's subordination, but he was unable to substantiate his propositions. From her study of ancient societies and states, she concludes that it was the appropriation of women's sexual and reproductive capacity by men that lies at the foundation of private property, and it preceded private property. The first states, Mesopotamia and Egypt, were organized in the form of patriarchy. Ancient law codes institutionalized women's sexual subordination, male control over the family, and slavery, and they were enforced with the power of the state. This was done through force, economic dependency of women, and class privileges to women of the upper classes. Through her study of Mesopotamia and other ancient states, she traces how ideas, symbols, and metaphors were developed through which patriarchal sex and gender relations were incorporated into Western civilization. Men learned how to dominate other societies by dominating their own women. But women continued to play an important role as priestesses, healers, etc., as seen in goddess worship. And it was only later that women's devaluation in religion also took place. Socialist feminists use terms like mechanical Marxists, traditional Marxists, to economistic Marxists, as those who uphold the Marxist theory concentrating on study and analysis of the capitalist economy and politics and differentiate themselves from them. They are criticizing all Marxists for not considering the fight against women's oppression as the central aspect of the struggle against capitalism. According to them, organizing women, feminist organizing projects, should be considered as socialist political work and socialist political activity must have a feminist side to it. 
Socialist Feminist Strategy for Women's Liberation. After tracing the history of the relationship between the left movement and the feminist movement in the U.S., a history where they have walked separately, Hartman strongly feels that the struggle against capitalism cannot be successful unless feminist issues are also taken up. She puts forward a strategy in which she says that the struggle for socialism must be in alliance with groups with different interests, e.g. women's interests are different from general working class interests. And secondly, she says that women must not trust men to liberate them after revolution. Women must have their own separate organization and their own power base. Young, too, supports the formation of autonomous women's groups, but thinks that there are no issues concerning women that do not involve an attack on capitalism as well. As far as her strategy is concerned, she means that there is no need for a vanguard party to make revolution successful, and that women's groups must be independent of the socialist organization. Jagger puts this clearly when she writes that, quote, the goal of socialist feminism is to overthrow the whole social order of what some call capitalist patriarchy, in which women suffer alienation in every aspect of their lives. The socialist feminist strategy is to support some, quote, mixed socialist organizations, but also form independent women's groups and ultimately an independent women's movement committed with equal dedication to the destruction of capitalism and the destruction of male dominance. The women's movement will join in coalitions with other revolutionary movements, but it will not give up its organizational independence. They have taken up agitations and propaganda on issues that are anti-capitalist and against male domination. Since they identify the mode of reproduction, procreation, etc., as the basis for the oppression of women, they have included it in the Marxist concept of the base of society. So they believe that many of the issues being taken up, like the struggle against rape, sexual harassment, for free abortion, are both anti-capitalist and a challenge to male domination. They have supported the efforts of developing a women's culture, which encourages the collective spirit. They also support the efforts to build alternative institutions, like healthcare facilities, and encouraged community living or some form of midway arrangement. In this way, they are close to radical feminists, but unlike radical feminists, whose aim is that these facilities should enable women to move away from patriarchal, white culture into their own haven, socialist feminists do not believe such a retreat is possible within the framework of capitalism. In short, socialist feminists see it as a means of organizing and helping women, while radical feminists see it as a goal of completely separating from men. Socialist feminists, like radical feminists, believe that efforts to change the family structure which is what they call the cornerstone of women's oppression, must start now. So they have been encouraging community living or some form of midway arrangements where people try to overcome the gender division in work sharing, looking after children, where lesbians and heterosexual people can live together. Though they are aware that this is only partial and success cannot be achieved within a capitalist society, they believe it is important to make the effort. Radical feminists assert that such arrangements are, quote, living in revolution. This means that the act is revolution itself. Socialist feminists are aware that transformation will not come slowly, that there will be periods of upheaval, but these are preparations. So this is their priority. Both radical feminists and socialist feminists have come under strong attack from black women for essentially ignoring the situation of black women and concentrating all their analysis on the situation of white, middle-class women and theorizing from it. For example, Joseph points out the condition of black slave women who were never considered, quote, feminine, 
in the fields and plantations, in labor and in punishment, they were treated equal to men. The black family could never stabilize under conditions of slavery, and black men were hardly in a condition to dominate their women, slaves that they were. Also, later on, black women have had to work for their living, and many of them have been domestic servants in rich white houses. The harassment they faced there, the long hours of work, make their experience very different from that of white women. Hence, they are not in agreement with the concepts of family being the source of oppression. For blacks, it was a source of resistance to racism. On dependence of women on men, black women can hardly be dependent on black men given the high rates of unemployment among them, and the reproduction role of women. They reproduced white labor and children through their domestic employment in white houses. Racism is an all-pervasive situation for them, and this brings them in alliance with black men rather than with white women. Then white women themselves have been involved in perpetuating racism, about which feminists should introspect, she argues. Initially, black women hardly participated in the feminist movement, though in the 1980s, slowly, a black feminist movement has developed, which is trying to combine the struggle against male domination with the struggle against racism and capitalism. These and similar criticisms from women of other third world countries has given rise to a trend within feminism called global feminism. In this context, postmodernism also gained a following among feminists. Critique Basically, if we see the main theoretical writings of socialist feminists, we can see that they are trying to combine Marxist theory with radical feminist theory, and their emphasis is on proving that women's oppression is the central and moving force in the struggle within society. The theoretical writings have been predominantly in Europe and in the U.S., and they're focused on the situation in advanced capitalist society. All their analysis is related to capitalism in their countries. Even their understanding of Marxism is limited to the study of dialectics of a capitalist economy. There is a tendency to universalize the experience and structure of advanced capitalist countries to the whole world. For example, in South Asia and China, which have had a long feudal period, we see that women's oppression in that period was much more severe. The Maoist perspective on the women's question in India also identifies patriarchy as an institution that has been the cause of women's oppression throughout class society. But it does not identify it as a separate system with its own laws of motion. The understanding is that patriarchy takes different content and forms in different societies depending on their level of development and the specific history and condition of that particular society, that it has been and is being used by the ruling classes to serve their interests. Hence, there is no separate enemy for patriarchy. The same ruling classes, whether imperialists, capitalists, feudals, and the state they control, are the enemies of women because they uphold and perpetuate the patriarchal family, gender discrimination, and the patriarchal ideology within their society. They get the support of ordinary men, undoubtedly who imbibe the patriarchal ideas, which are the ideas of the ruling class, and oppress women. But the position of ordinary men and those of the ruling classes cannot be compared. Socialist feminists, by emphasizing reproduction, are underplaying the importance of the role of women in social production. The crucial question is that without women having control over the means of production and over the means of producing necessities and wealth, how can the subordination of women ever be ended? This is not only an economic question, but also a question of power, a political question. Though this can be considered in the context of the gender-based division of labor, in practice their emphasis is on relations within the heterosexual family and on ideology of patriarchy. 
On the other hand, the Marxist perspective stresses women's role in social production, and her withdrawal from playing a significant role in social production has been the basis for her subordination in class society. So, we are concerned with how the division of labor, relations to the means of production, and labor itself in a particular society is organized to understand how the ruling classes exploited women and forced their subordination. Patriarchal norms and rules helped to intensify the exploitation of women and reduce the value of their labor. Supporting the argument given by Firestone, socialist feminists stress women's roles in reproduction to build their whole argument. They take the following quotation of Engels, quote, According to the materialist conception, the determining factor in history is, in the final instance, the production and reproduction of immediate life. This, again, is of a twofold character. On the one side, the production of the means of existence, of food, clothing, and shelter, and the tools necessary for that production. On the other side, the production of human beings themselves, the propagation of the species. The social organization under which the people of a particular epoch live is determined by both kinds of production, unquote. That is from Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. On the basis of this quotation, they make the point that, in their analysis and study, they only concentrated on production, ignoring reproduction altogether. Engels' quote gives the basic framework of a social formation. Historical materialism, our study of history, makes it clear that any one aspect cannot be isolated or even understood without taking the others into account. The fact is that throughout history, women have played an important role in social production, and to ignore this, and to assert that women's role in the sphere of reproduction is the central aspect, and it should be the main focus, is in fact accepting the argument of the patriarchal ruling classes that women's social role in reproduction is most important and nothing else is. The socialist feminists also distort and render meaningless the concept of base and superstructure in their analysis. Firestone says that, and so do socialist feminists like Hartman, reproduction is part of the base. It follows from all this that social relations connected with it must be considered as part of the base, the family, other man-woman relations, etc. If all the economic relations and reproductive relations are part of the base, the concept of base becomes so broad that it loses its meaning altogether, and it cannot be an analytic tool as it was meant to be. Gender-based division of labor has been a useful tool to analyze the patriarchal bias in the economic structure of particular societies. But the socialist feminists who are putting forward the concept of the gender division of labor as being more useful than private property are confusing the point, historically and analytically. The first division of labor was between men and women, and it was due to natural or biological causes, the role of women in bearing children. But this didn't mean inequality between them, the domination of one sex over another. Women's share in the survival of the group was very important. The food gathering they did, the discovery they made of growing and tending plants, the domestication of animals, was essential for the survival and advance of the group. At the same time, further division of labor took place, which was not sex-based. The invention of new tools, knowledge of domesticating animals, of pottery, of metalwork, of agriculture, all these and more, contributed to making a more complex division of labor. 
All this has to be seen in the context of the overall society and its structure, the development of clan and kinship structures, of interactions and clashes with other groups, and of control over the means of production that were being developed. With the generation of surplus, with wars and the subjugation of other groups who could be made to labor, the process of withdrawal of women from social production appears to have begun. This led to the concentration of the means of production and the surplus in the hands of clan heads, tribe heads, which became manifest as male domination. Whether this control of the means of production remained communal in form, or whether it developed in the form of private property, whether by then class formation took place fully or not, is different in different societies. We have to study the particular facts of specific societies. Based on the information available in his time, Engels traced the process in Western Europe in ancient times. It is for us to trace this process in our respective societies. The full-fledged institutionalization of patriarchy could only come later. That is the defense of or the ideological justification for the withdrawal of women from social production, and their role being limited to reproduction in monogamous relationships could only come after the full development of class society and the emergence of the state. Hence, the mere fact of the gender division of labor does not explain the inequality. To assert that gender-based division of labor is the basis of women's oppression rather than class still begs the question. If we do not find some social, material reasons for the inequality, we are forced into accepting the argument that men have an innate drive for power and domination. Such an argument is self-defeating because it means there is no point in struggling for equality. It can never be realized. The task of bearing children by itself cannot be the reason for this inequality, for as we have said earlier, it was a role that was lauded and welcomed in primitive society. Other material reasons had to arise that were the cause, which the radical and socialist feminists are not probing. In the realm of ideology, socialist feminists have done detailed analyses exposing the patriarchal culture in their society, e.g. the myth of motherhood. But the one-sided emphasis by some of them, who focus only on ideological and psychological factors, makes them lose sight of the wider socioeconomic structure on which this ideology and psychology is based. In organizational questions, the socialist feminists are trailing the radical feminists and anarcho-feminists. They have clearly placed their strategy, but this is not a strategy for socialist revolution. It is a completely reformist strategy because it does not address the question of how socialism can be brought about. If, as they believe, socialist communist parties should not do it, then the women's groups should bring forth a strategy of how they will overthrow the male of the monopoly bourgeoisie. They are restricting their practical activities to small group organizing, building alternative communities, of general propaganda, and mobilizing around specific demands. This is a form of economistic practice. These activities in themselves are useful to organize people at the basic level, but they are not enough to overthrow capitalism and to take the process of women's liberation ahead. This entails a major organizing work involving confrontation with the state, its intelligence, and armed power. Socialist feminists have left this question aside, in a sense left it to the very revisionist and revolutionary parties whom they criticize. Hence their entire orientation is reformist, to undertake limited organizing and propaganda within the present system. 
A large number of the theoreticians of the radical feminist and socialist feminist trend have been absorbed in high-paying middle-class jobs, especially in the universities and colleges, and this is reflected in the elitism that has crept into their writing and their distance from the mass movement. It is also reflected in the realm of theory. One Marxist feminist states, quote, by the 1980s, however many socialist and Marxist feminists working in or near universities and colleges not only had been thoroughly integrated into the professional middle class, but had also abandoned historical materialism's class analysis, unquote. And that's the end of section five. Uh, we're now going to be beginning section six, postmodernism and feminism. I just want to comment there. I really haven't commented uh, too much so far. I found uh, this last section particularly interesting. And um, I mean, for the last few decades, the socialist movement um, outside of the very few countries that are actually existing socialism today uh, have really been kind of at a standstill um, since the fall of the Soviet Union in particular, a lot of the Western European parties have become um, very reformist and weak from what I understand, um, from what I've been told. And of course, here in the United States where I am, um, I mean, that's just been going on for decades. This uh, point about um, the distance from the mass movement of the uh, radical feminist and social feminists. Um, you know, I think I can already hear some people criticizing that. Um, and of course, it's a problem. Socialism needs to be as close to the masses as it possibly can be. That said, over the last 40 or 50 years, you know, the neoliberal era, um, there's been a real retreat of feminism. I mean, starting really in the McCarthy period, um, you had to swear up and down that you weren't a communist, etc., just to have any kind of a place in a labor union or a community institution of any kind. And so um, Marxists really have been effectively driven out of public life in a lot of ways. One of the only places you can exist at all is in a university. Um, find me labor unions, you know, that are Marxist in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I think the only revolutionary labor union that is in existence at all, even, you know, on paper, is the IWW in the United States, and they're not Marxist, they're anarchist. So, um, I don't know where else people are supposed to go at this point because the capitalists have been so effective in driving us out of any, well, first of all, destroying mass institutions and then driving us out of anything, you know, where people are. In fact, uh, you know, I've been talking a little bit recently about how socialists have started rebuilding um, some kind of a, a movement or like a messaging network using social media, and that has truly only been in the last five or 10 years. I spent a lot of time on the internet, back alleys of the internet, you know, fringe <laughs> pages of the internet in the 2000s, and um, there just wasn't a whole lot of socialism going on that I could see anywhere. Uh, you know, channels like this one and other actual Marxist channels uh, or, web, you know, web pages, uh, social media pages, it's fairly new. Um, at least in any anything closely resembling the numbers that we're seeing today. I have a lot of faith in good faith dialogue, discourse, and discussion among people who share similar basic value sets. And um, 
you know, it's heartening to see that these kinds of things are going on in, on the internet today. That's the spirit in which this channel is offered. I mean, this is heady stuff. We're not done with the book yet. And we have, uh, you know, covered five of the major philosophical trends within feminism. Um, these are important questions to resolve because until there is women's liberation, there is not going to be full workers' liberation. Um, I, I sincerely do think that Marxism, at least you look at the movements today, uh, these questions have not been answered in, and these questions have not been fully integrated. And uh, I think that a lot of the points made in this section um, were just spot on. I don't know that I can offer any brilliant insights above and beyond what Anuradha Gandhi already has added. But uh, anyway, just some praise from me for that. And, you know, to the listener, appreciate the situation we're in now. Like I said, I, I think, you know, five or ten years is all we've been doing this for. Please make the most of it. Um, you know, we need to take every move that we can make to, uh, you know, take a stride forward and not a step backwards. This particularly does mean um, answering important questions like women's liberation, which if Marxism hasn't been addressing it enough, we absolutely need to do that. All right, so let's get on to section six here, which is postmodernism and feminism. Side note, since I'm in commenting mode, I cannot stand postmodernism. I think it has a few valuable insights. By and large, I feel like postmodernism is uh, an ideological reflection of neoliberalism. Uh, would take me a lot of paragraphs to kind of explain that in full, but um, I am I am not a fan, and and I feel like the postmodernist turn. Um, to me, there's it seems like there's a lot of correlations with neoliberalism. That said. I also think that there are some valuable points. Let's see what Anuradha Gandhi has to say. The criticism of feminists from non-white women led to a section of feminists to move in the direction of multiculturalism and postmodernism. Taking off from the existentialist writer Simone de Beauvoir, they consider that woman is the, quote, other, opposed to the dominant culture prevailing, e.g. Dalits, Adivadis, women, etc., Postmodernist feminists are glorifying the position of the other because it is supposed to give insights into the dominant culture of which she is not a part. Women can therefore be critical of the norms, values, and practices imposed on everyone by the dominant culture. They believe that studies should be oriented from the values of those who are being studied, the subalterns, who have been dominated. Postmodernism has been popular among academics. They believe that no fixed category exists. In this case, woman. The self is fragmented by various identities, by sex, class, caste, ethnic community, race. These various identities have a value in themselves, thus this becomes one form of cultural relativism. Hence, for example, in reality no category of only woman exists. Woman can be one of the identities of the self, but there are others too. There will be a Dalit woman, a Dalit woman prostitute, an upper caste woman, and such like. Since each identity has a value in itself, no significance is given to values towards which all can strive. Looked at in this way, there is no scope to find common ground for collective political activity. The concept woman helped to bring women together and acts collectively. But this kind of identity politics divides more than it unites. 
the unity is on the most narrow basis. Postmodernists celebrate difference and identity, and they criticize Marxism for focusing on one, quote, totality, class. Further, postmodernism does not believe that language, Western languages at least, reflect reality. They believe that identities are constructed through discourse. Thus, in their understanding, language constructs reality. Therefore, many of them have focused on, quote, deconstruction of language. But in effect, this leaves a person with nothing. There is no material reality about which we can be certain. This is a form of extreme subjectivism. Postmodernist feminists have focused on psychology and language. Postmodernism, in agreement with the famous French philosopher Foucault, are against what they call, quote, relations of power. But this concept of power is diffused, and it is not clearly defined. Who wields the power? According to Foucault, it is only at the local level, so resistance to power can only be local. Is this not the basis of NGO functioning, which unites people against some local corrupt power and makes adjustments with the power above the central and state governments? In effect, postmodernism is extremely divisive because it promotes fragmentation between people and gives relative importance to identities without any theoretical framework to understand the historical reasons for identity formation and to link the various identities. So we can have a gathering of NGOs like WSF where everyone celebrates their identity, women, prostitutes, gays, lesbians, tribals, Dalits, etc. But there's no theory bringing them together under an overall understanding, a common strategy. Each group will resist its own oppressors as it perceives them. With such an argument, logically, there can be no organization. At best, it can be spontaneous organization at the local level and temporary coalitions. To advocate organization, according to their understanding, means to reproduce power, hierarchy, oppression. Essentially, they leave the individual to resist for himself or herself and are against consistent organized resistance and armed resistance. Carol Stabile, a Marxist feminist, has put it well when she says, anti-organizational bias is part and parcel of the postmodernist package. To organize any but the most provisional and spontaneous coalitions is, for postmodernist social theorists and feminists alike, to reproduce oppression, hierarchies, and forms of intractable dominance. The fact that capitalism is extremely organized makes little difference because one resists against a multivalent, diffuse form of power. Nor, as Joreen pointed out over two decades ago, does it seem to matter that structurelessness produces its own forms of tyranny. Thus, in place of any organized politics, postmodernist social theory offers us variations on pluralism, individualism, individualized agency, and ultimately individualized solutions that have never and will never be capable of resolving structural problems. It is not surprising that for the postmodernists, capitalism, imperialism, etc., do not mean anything more than one form of power. While postmodernism in its developed form may not be found in a semi-colonial society like India, many bourgeois feminists have been influenced by it. Their vehement criticism of revolutionary and revisionist organizations on grounds of bureaucracy and hierarchy also reflects the influence of postmodernism in recent times. Summing up. We have presented in brief the main theoretical trends in the feminist movements as they have developed in the West in the contemporary period. While the debate with Marxism and within Marxism dominated the 1970s, in the 1980s, cultural feminism with its separatist agenda and focus on the cultural aspects of women's oppression came to the fore. Issues of sexual choice, 
and reproductive role of women came to dominate the debate and discussions in feminist circles. Many socialist feminists, too, have given significance to these questions, though not in the extreme form that cultural feminists have. Transformation of the heterosexual family became the main call of the bourgeois feminist movement, and the more active sections among them tried to bring it into practice as well. Though many of them may have envisaged a change in the entire social system in this way, it in fact became a reformist approach which they have tried to theorize. Postmodernism made its influence felt in the 1990s. Yet in the late 1990s, Marxism is again becoming an important theory within feminist analysis. This critical overview of the way the feminist movement, particularly the radical feminist and socialist feminist trends, theoretically analyzed women's oppression, the solutions they have offered and strategies they evolved to take the movement forward, we can say that flaws in their theory have led to advocating solutions which have taken the movement into a dead end. In spite of the tremendous interest generated by the movement and wide support from women who were seeking to understand their own dissatisfactions and problems, the movement could not develop into a consistent, broad-based movement, including not only the middle classes, but also women from the working class and ethnically oppressed sections. The main weaknesses in their theory and strategies were seeking roots of women's oppression in her reproductive role. Since women's role in reproduction is determined by biology, it is something that cannot be changed. Instead of determining the material, social causes for origin of women's oppression, they focused on a biologically given factor, thereby falling into the trap of biological determinism. In relation with her biological role, focusing on the patriarchal nuclear family as the basic structure in society in which her oppression is rooted. Thus, their emphasis was on opposing the heterosexual family as the main basis of women's oppression. As a result, the wider socioeconomic structure in which the family exists and which shapes the family was ignored, making the contradiction between men and women as the main contradiction, concentrating their attention on changing the sex and gender system, the gender roles that men and women are trained to play. This meant concentrating on the cultural, psychological aspects of social life and ignoring the wider political and economic forces that give rise to and defend patriarchal culture. Emphasizing the psychological and personality differences between men and women as biological and advocating separatism for women. Overemphasis on sexual liberation for women's separate groups, separate live-in arrangements, and lesbianism. Essentially, this meant that this section of the women's movement confined itself to small groups and could not appeal to or mobilize the mass of women. Falling into the trap of imperialism and its promotion of pornography, sex tourism, etc., by emphasizing the need for liberating women from sexual repression, or in the name of equal opportunities, supporting women's recruitment into the U.S. Army before the Iraq War. Organizational emphasis on opposition to hierarchy and domination, and focus on small consciousness-raising groups and alternative activity, which is self-determined, opposing the mobilization and organizing of large masses of oppressed women. Ignoring or being biased against the contributions made by the socialist movements and socialist revolutions in Russia, China, etc., in bringing about a change in the condition of large sections of women. How incorrect theoretical analysis and wrong strategies can affect a movement can be clearly seen in the case of the feminist movement. Not understanding women's oppression as linked to the wider exploitative socioeconomic and political structure, to imperialism, they have sought solutions within the imperialist system itself. 
These solutions have at best benefited a section of middle-class women, but left the vast mass of oppressed and exploited women far from liberation. The struggle for women's liberation cannot be successful in isolation from the struggle to overthrow the imperialist system itself. All right, so that is the end of the audiobook right there. Thank you for sticking with this longer three-part text. I think that this is really important subject matter. Uh, I personally, I went to college and I did take several courses that were in like women's studies and gender studies uh, type of things. So this was not completely new to me. Uh, I wasn't a major in those subjects. So, you know, I didn't uh, eat, breathe and sleep it. But um, there is a lot here. You know, you, you listen to people like Jordan Peterson or somebody like that. I mean, I feel like as one of the people talking about feminism and postmodernism and all this stuff kind of the most, whereas like almost actual feminists you don't hear from as often, let alone for somebody who is a Marxist, which, you know, as we determined by looking at the analytics for this channel in December 2020, um, the audience of this channel was like 99% male. You know, that's a problem. That's why we're doing a lot more feminist and just in general women's oriented, uh, you know, selections in 2021. Already that has been changing. Uh, you know, it's no longer less than 1% women. So it is on the rise. When it hits something really significant, I will, uh, you know, something worth really celebrating. Um, I will uh, post a notice to that effect. But already I can tell you it's heading in the right direction. But yeah, um, the existing Marxist world seems to be very male. The existing feminist world seems to be very female. And uh, we need to bring these worlds together. We need people in these movements to become interested in working together. You know, okay, and let me tie this together, and this will be a good closing, in fact. The socialist movement is small. Even if you want to include anarchists and, like, some of the further left social democrats, the movement is still small. We're not a majority, say, in the United States. Uh, we need to be a lot bigger of a movement. We need to take over this country. The left needs to take over this country, and hopefully Marxist leadership comes out on top. Um, we are trying to educate people, and, you know, of course, people need to want to be educated, which is key. Um, that's why I said, you know, feminists should become interested in socialism. Socialists should become interested in feminism so that we can actually meet and discuss these things and build a movement that incorporates all of the questions because they do all overlap. But um, so our numbers are few and we need our numbers to be many. Okay. So that means making more socialists and, you know, finding people who are working on other uh, relevant struggles that, you know, we can, um, basically trade notes with and take on some of their movement and they take on ours and we all come away with a stronger coalition. The exact opposite of this was recently proposed by comedy news guy, Jimmy Dore, who has a large YouTube channel, uh, used to be on the TYT air quotes, progressive read Democrat shilling network, uh, the young Turks. And he had a boogaloo boy, far right militia guy on his show and uh, I've been getting a tremendous amount of flack, still majority positive, but a tremendous amount of flack for saying that's a terrible idea. We shouldn't be working with right wing, air quotes, libertarians 
who are the laughing stock of you know politics, economics, any you know field of study you want to name. Um, they're crazy. They want to literally privatize everything. It couldn't be any further from communism or you know any variant of socialism that you could possibly imagine. We don't have common ground with these people. Maybe they're working class. Their ideology, although many of them are petty bourgeois or just bourgeois, the Libertarian Party is not exactly like a you know friend of the working class um, to say the least. So, uh, how much common ground are we going to have with those people? That's not where we need to be looking for allies and for recruits. Okay, not primarily. And this frequently gets uh, recast as. Oh, you're suggesting not talking to them. Look, the internet exists. Everyone is always talking to everyone. And the most ignorant right-winger now is no longer dependent on their paw, you know, uh, to like just learn them something when they're growing up. You can get on the internet now with a phone, which almost everyone has, and access universities worth of information now yes you got to kind of learn how to learn and critical thinking and all that kind of stuff but the fact is everybody's talking to everybody at this point i'm not suggesting not to i run a socialist channel we're putting out audiobooks we're putting out discussion we're putting out analysis some of that is aimed at the existing left some of it is aimed at the general public the masses as you will um but everybody's talking to everybody the point is, where do we target trying to, you know, people who are also on the right track, who we probably could work with? Feminists. You know, maybe not some of the most bourgeois feminists who are really going to explicitly defend capitalism. But feminists, as a, as, in, as a general rule, in general as a whole, are people who absolutely Marxists of all stripes need to be talking to and um, sharing Marxist ideas with and picking up feminist ideas and hopefully both get improved in the process. And that's the idea, is looking for people who are also involved in social justice struggles, not right-wing libertarians, right-wing militias, who literally stand for the opposite of everything we're trying to do. That's not how you build your coalition. <laughs> that's not how you build a people-powered movement to end capitalism. So I just want to contrast this when you're trying to target, you know, interest groups. How about not targeting the most reactionary, vilest elements in society? Food for thought. Instead, we Marxists need to learn a lot more about feminism. Critique it, as Anuradha Gandhi did here. Critique it. Healthy criticism helps everyone, makes us all more intelligent. Also, is Marxism not landing with women sometimes for some reasons? Well, we as Marxists need to work on that. Forget the right-wing militia guys for right now. Let's focus on groups who are actually involved in trying to make society better. And that's the video. Thanks to our current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen or just support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash socialism for all and sign up for a monthly donation. 
You can also follow us at facebook.com slash socialism, the number for all. Used to have a page at F-O-R all and it got throttled to death by Zuck. Here on YouTube, please click the like button, subscribe button, and the notifications bell. Please leave a comment if you can, and please share our video wherever you're online, your Twitter feed, your Discord servers, Reddit subs, etc. All of that helps more people to see this content, whether it's in the YouTube algorithm or just posting it on other sites. All of that's helpful. All of you out there supporting and promoting this content makes it all go that much more smoothly. We need to end capitalism, normalize talking about socialism today, and uh, it's really kind of our only hope for a better tomorrow. Thanks for all you do, and we will catch you in the next video.